Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It's good to see you uh, here today. We are in the book of Romans. This is the the sixth message of that series. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. We'll read the text uh, to to kick us off. We are in chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, if you want to... Uh, follow along in the little Romans books that we have. Just FYI, if you don't have one, we bought little booklets for you. It has the text in them and an area to take notes. Super handy to bring back to missional communities or DNA groups or just look throughout uh, the week into those. And then also a little FYI on uh, our church center app, we've been doing questions every week. So if you want to kind of process the sermon before we get there, deal with some of the heavy things in it to try and figure out what's happening. Those questions are there. If you don't know how to find those, uh, myself or somebody else would be happy to help you uh, with that after church. But uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 12 starts this way. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. According to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh, You who say that that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision uh, be regarded as circumcision? When he who is physically uncircumcised by or but keeps the law will condemn you who have been a, a written code and a circumcision but break the law. I've never said circumcision that many times. 28, sorry. Uh, for no one who is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcised outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and a circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Paul has been walking us down kind of a heavy path the last couple of weeks. Uh, last week, the week before, and the week before that. And it's a heavy path that we have called the bad news, showing us what sin does in the hearts of men and women. But here's the kicker. It's what it does in the hearts of both men and women who are irreligious or religious alike. In the end of chapter one, Paul kind of dealt with the irreligious ones, those who reject God's command. They, they're openly disobeying God. They're not even pretending uh, to try and obey or honor or anything like that. But then in chapter two, where we're at that last week and this week, Paul switches his focus to uh, what, what we're going to call r- religious folk, uh, people who go to church, one who thinks that they're, they're kind of okay with God 
because of the rituals they have, the habits that they have, the heritages that they have, the laws that they keep, just kind of the things that they're built into their calendar they think make them fine, yet inside they're just as sinful as the irreligious ones. Paul has been warning both groups of people, irreligious or uh, religious, declaring to them the reality of God's wrath and God's judgment and God's justice that will come perfectly that God will judge rightly every sin, every action, every judgmental word that we give towards other people. He'll even judge that. And the idea that he's been bringing across to us is our lives, the way that we live them and what we do with them matters greatly. It's dangerous to go on autopilot and believe that your life doesn't matter. Now, I realize that these sections of scripture, they're kind of weighty. Uh, They're they're difficult to look at and think about um, because they talk so much about judgment and wrath and and justice, but the only way that we will ever see the unimaginable grace that salvation affords us is to behold how badly we need to be saved in the first place, which is what Paul is doing here. We have a slide for this, but Tim Keller says, without judgment, salvation has no meaning. You've got, you got to really process that. If there is no judgment, there's no, there's no reason to even have salvation at all. Without the reality of God's present and future wrath, the cross is emptied of its glory. He's saying if there is no wrath, what's the point of even having a cross? There are those who, when they hear of God's judgment, they just kind of get tight and uncomfortable. And we've had people say this to, to, to me before, but we should just focus on God's love. Uh, we should focus on his mercy and his kindness. And the world's hard enough, so let's just let's build people up. Let's encourage people. Let's just talk, talk about the good stuff. Like, let's leave that fire and brimstone stuff. Let's leave that Old Testament wrathy stuff behind. But here's the thing that we need to understand. Without all of that Old Testament wrath stuff, which is also in the New Testament, uh, you have no gospel. There literally is no good news. And we have to understand that the gospel means literal good news, the good news of Jesus. Why is Jesus good news? Because without him, we're in a really bad spot. God has sent Jesus to deal with the problem of our sin for us and in our place, to pay the penalty of our sin for us, to rescue us from our brokenness. God has made a way out of that wrath that is so uncomfortable and a way out that we did not deserve. Many people ask, well, why aren't there many ways? You deserve no way, but there is a way. Praise God. And through Christ, God makes us brand new. He restores us into the family of God. And, and the beautiful part that we need to understand is the world tells you that God wants to take your humanity from you. John, or, and Paul's always going to tell you when you are aligned with and in the family of God, that's actually where your, your humanness is restored. You are less human in your sin. We cannot forget that we need rescuing and redemption. We cannot forget, even when it makes us feel uh, uncomfortable, the reality of wrath, it would be a mistake to ignore our situation and make ourselves feel better. We must look at the bad news square in the face in order to understand the full beauty of the good news. This is precisely what he has been doing in these texts. That's what we've been focusing on uh, three weeks prior, this week, in another week or two. Uh, That's what this focus is all about. So the text last week is directly connected to this week. There are many times in uh, Romans where we're going to see an idea thematically where two sermons are kind of, they probably should go together, but for time's sake, there's just no way that we can do that. The, the, the two irreligious sermons could have gone together. This sermon and last week's could have gone together, uh, but just for time's sake, we couldn't. So I'll remind you, verses 1 through 11, Paul was warning religious folks, people who go to church, who, who, who believe that they're good with God, of the danger of judging other people for their sins and, and their wrongdoings while doing the same type of things with perceived impunity. 
this is the act of harshly criticizing other people's sins and their weaknesses while accepting our own. Or, or finding loopholes. It is a dangerous thing. If you believe that your sin is different than theirs, theirs, and theirs for these reasons, it's a dangerous thing. There are no loopholes. Do not justify your sin and somehow think it's differently, Paul was telling them. Paul said directly as well, do not presume uh, that, that because God is patient with you for that one sin issue, that that means that he is okay with it. Do not assume that he is okay with the hypocrisy. He's giving you time, uh, not as a way to show you that your sin is okay. He's giving you time because he's gracious and kind so that you will repent. Use it, Paul says. And, and when he says that you use it, he, he, he begins to talk about something else that makes us uncomfortable. He says, do not store up wrath for yourself because God will not forget your sins even if you do. Store up good works. That, that was the, the, the change there. Don't store up wrath by sinning and thinking it's no big deal. Instead, store up treasure in heaven through your good works. If anything landed last week, I hope it was this kind of understanding. It's possible to be an unconverted, irreligious person, right? The, the guy who's just way out there and they, they, have, they completely understand that they are not, them and God are not cool. It's, it's possible to be an unconverted, irreligious person, and it's also possible to be an unconverted, highly religious person. Both of those are possible and plausible. And if you look through the New Testament, Jesus and the other authors over and over and over are going to tell you and me there's a real danger that you assume that this could never be you. We're really good at being religious and unconverted, now, we cannot assume that we are saved just because we have adopted religious routines, Paul is letting us know. We need to instead look at our hearts, look at how we're judging other people, look at the sins that we believe are no big deal, and then also look at the good works that we want to carry out, and we need to look at those to confirm that we have the faith that we're proclaiming that we do have. And we need to see again that the way we live matters. As we open the text this week, I lean into the words of the Apostle uh, Peter about Paul. Some things that he writes are really hard to understand, right? If someone else in the Bible writes that about you, I, I, there's some things that are difficult that he writes. Verse 12 through 16 falls into this category of you just kind of like re, you have to read it like 18 times to try and figure out what's going on there. But to understand what's happening in these verses, it'd be helpful to remember these scriptures, this text, these, this part right here is written to the, the Jews, to Jewish people. This was the religious crowd that Paul directly had in mind at that time. And in that time in Judaism, there are three pillars, three main things to their faith. And they were this covenant, law, and circumcision. And the Jewish people wanted to have these three pillars as being these things that they kind of hide behind. Because we have these, everything else in our life is fine. Effectively saying, since God made the covenant with us in the Old Testament, and since God gave us the law, not everybody else, he gave it to us, and since he gave us the sign of circumcision, those are all proof that we're fine with God and everything's good and we're his people and he's our God and like just kind of end of story. We are his, it's all good. How do you know you're saved? Well, he gave us the law. This is kind of what they would think. Well, Paul is beginning to show them that the pillars that they have are not a safety net against judgment. We can't claim the, 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 the pillars of our faith or, or regular things as kind of get out of hell free card or anti-wrath or dodger cards for wrath. These things are useless if no obedience springs forth from our faith. He's saying your pillars are great, but if there is no obedience with your pillars, there's something really wrong. So uh, Paul, over, or over and over in this book, he, he's brilliant at seeing defeater beliefs and people coming in going, hey, what about that? And so what he does in this section is, is he foresees some guy pushing back against his word, saying, hey, Paul, 
right? We have the law. We're good. We're, we're fine, right? I know that you're a little worried about us, but we have the law. We're absolutely fine. It's a sign that we're fine. It's a sign that we're God's people. And Paul says this in response to that foreseen pushback. He says, hearing the law does not mean anything. You have to be doers of the law to be justified. Hearing doesn't mean anything. You have to be doers, You can carry a scroll around with you all the day long and read it from time to time, especially when you do bad things. But if your heart is disconnected from the things inside of that scroll and they're not working on you and obedience isn't coming from it, it's all useless. This would be like me taking a a healthy eating diet book with me everywhere I go for a year and reading a page or two every day while I still eat pizza and have tacos all the time and and french fries and drink beer and assume that I'm losing weight because I have that book and read some words out of it. There is no magic in hearing the words. You have to actually do them. Obviously, that analogy breaks down in some ways. This is what Paul's saying. You can't just hear the words Yes, you have the law, good for you, and you can hear them regularly, but you're not doing them. And if you're not doing them, there's a a problem. Upon hearing this, the Jewish leaders would have been even more triggered by what he said. How dare you say we have to be doers of of the law, Paul? We already are doers of the law. We tithe off of pretty much everything, even our spice rack. We go to the temple several times, we fast, and we tell everyone when we're fasting so like they can confirm it. And, and we pray and, and we do sacrifices and ceremonial washings. And I've got like the religious robe that I have to wear. Come on. I do all of this law and religious things all the time. I have so many law activities in my schedule, which would have been right. They did, they did a lot of stuff. There was a lot of laws that they followed really, really well. But Paul would have had most certainly the, the Shema in mind here, which is what Jesus and other authors called um, which is what Jesus and others called the, the summation of the Old Testament law. So if you ever wondered, there's so many commands and there's so many things. And how do I know, especially nowadays versus then, like what do we need to, to do? And how, how do we know uh, what, what to follow? And how do we even know if we're on the right step for, for trying to follow the law? And the answer was always this. If you want to know if you're on the right path, if you want to understand the summation of the law, these two things will tell you all that you need to know. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor. That's the people that you see around you as you love yourself in the way that you would want to be loved. So check this out. By judging other people for them sinning while kind of doing the same things and giving yourself a pass, like I see you doing it and I want to hammer you for it, but I'm going to do the same thing and kind of have a, a, a pass on me doing it. This is not loving your neighbor. This isn't treating them with decency and kindness. Do you want other people to point out your sins and your flaws and absolutely be ruthless at you for doing something while they do the same thing as soon as they leave you? No, you don't want to be loved like that. What, what they're doing is they're, they're violating the back half of, of, of the Shema already. They're not loving the people around them through their harsh judgment while doing the same thing. Again, this isn't saying you can never say anything's wrong. It's the fact that they were oh so willing to crush other people while being oh so willing to to give themselves a pass. And he says, and you're also not following the law uh, out of love for God. You don't love God the Father, and that's the reason that you're doing it. It's not like David in the Old Testament that your law is like honey to my lips. you're, You're doing it because it's this religious duty that you've kept up for a long time. It's just kind of your religious autopilot syndrome. It's the things that you do, they're built into your calendar. You just kind of, you do them, you don't think about them. It's not changing you internally. It's just the routine that you have. And you're even doing it a little bit to feel superior to the people around you. 
You're doing your religious duties to, to, to get good standing with God. You, you, you're not doing it because you love God. You believe that God will be indebted to you if you do these things. You're doing it for notoriety, for pride, for all of these things, and you're even doing these law activities to justify the habits that you don't want to change. Saying this isn't loving God at all. This is self-love and an ingrained routine. So the entire Shema, you're not loving the people around you and you're not loving God. So no matter how many lists, well, we're doing this, 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 but you're missing the entire point, Paul would be saying. Paul then in verse 16 says, another just a statement that should keep you up at night every once in a while. On the day of judgment, we all will be judged by Christ Jesus, whom God appointed. What does it say in the text? And on that day, the secrets of our hearts will be judged. Nothing will be hidden. This means the secrets of our heart will be exposed upon judgment by Jesus. Jesus warned over and over and over his own generation that what they did in secret would be made manifest. It would be brought in the light. The things that you've worked really hard to not let people know about. The things that maybe just your spouse or your family know about. The, the, the heart level things that you're okay to just kind of keep in there. All skeletons and all closets will be empty. They'll be seen. So for the religious person hiding behind having the law to justify him, that person's heart, their inner motives, maybe the rage that simmers inside, the, the bitter jealousy that they have towards other people, the, the maybe the cultivated lust or the, 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 the bad motives or, or the sins behind closed door, all of those things will come flying out. On the day of judgment, you've worked so hard to, to, to close that closet and make sure nobody knows what's in there and it'll all come flying out. All will be made visible. But here's the reality. It's not just the religious guy this is going to happen to. It's you and I as well. The secrets of your heart, the things that you keep under the layers, all of those will come out. Our hidden sins, our heart's dispositions that we foster, twisted motives, rebellious spirits, they'll all be dragged out into the light by Christ who is himself the light. Upon hearing this, if you have any sense of of honest self-awareness, you have to be thinking, I'm not really looking forward to that day. Like there has to be a, a level inside that's going like, I don't, it's just not going to be good. There's some stuff in there. It, it's not going to be my brightest moment when Jesus pulls it out and, and we just know that it's true. But here's the beauty. That's why we're covered by Christ as well. That's what redemption is. That's what being born again is. It's a divine cover-up. It's a scandalous cover-up where Christ's righteousness is placed over all the things that we have in our closet. It's not that our secrets won't be revealed. We have these ideas that grace covers all things and it's just, it, it just, it's just gone. It's, just, no, it's gone in the sense that you don't pay for it if Christ is. No one will escape the fact that the things that you have hidden will be brought before God. But when they are, when the laundry list of hidden things get brought into the light, Christ, whom is appointed to be the judge over all of that, will also be the Savior. Praise God for that. Who says, they did all of that stuff. All of it is completely true. And I paid for it all on the cross. 
It's not that they didn't do it. It's that I paid for it. This is, this is the beauty of why we take communion. Your broken body, your blood, it covers all of my closet, all of my stuff. You and you alone. Christ alone is the only one who could cover all of my shame and all of my sin. Jesus would say they get declared righteous because of me. Not because they were righteous. My righteousness now gets put on their resume through their faith. I've covered them. Yes, they did it all. Yes, I paid for it all too. R.C. Sproul says this, and I, I, mean, I just found it he- heavy in a good way this, this week. The last thing that we want to do is appear before God like Adam and Eve after they sin naked and uncovered. No covering. No righteousness of Jesus. And here's what Paul wants us to know. Religion doesn't get you that covering. I want you to be here every week. You being here every week doesn't get you that covering either. Following a moral code, mine or the one that you've invented, does not get you a covering. There's only one thing that gets you the covering of Christ, and that's calling out to God for Jesus to save you. It, it, it's, it's interesting to, ra- to wrap your mind around Reformed theology and salvation at some time. So here's one of the things that I want us to hear. Do not assume that you are saved if you've never called out to God. Just don't assume. Call to God for Jesus to save you. What are the other parts that are needed in salvation? Confess and repent. Father, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need Jesus. I need his covering. I've tried to cover other stuff. I've tried to deny that I've done stuff. I've tried to just be good. I cannot do any of those things. The only answer is the answer that you have provided. Father, I, I, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. I believe in him for the problem of my sin. Will he save me? And it's this repenting of the sins, not, going, not meaning that you're perfect. It's I'm going to try and turn from that stuff and back to Jesus, understand, please, please, no matter how long you've been here, do not assume that you're his if you've never asked him to be his. It's a big mistake, I think. This Jewish crowd was addressing, that Paul was addressing, they didn't do any of that stuff. They claimed, I have the covenant, I have the law, I've been circumcised. Why would I do that if I didn't get something for it? I've done all of those things, so I'm probably fine. No heart level call to God, no confession, no repentance. And what's going on is they missed the entire point besides the, behind all the, the, the pompous and show and the ritual of the faith that they carried on. They assumed they were saved because of their habits. They assumed they were saved because of their heritage. And Paul is telling them, never, ever, ever assume over your soul. Don't do that. And my plea to you is just is clearly the same. Don't, don't assume. Please don't assume. Don't leave your eternity up to hoping that God will let you slide. Do not uh, leave your eternity up to going, well, I was there all the time, so surely he knows that I've called out to him even though that I have, I have not. Don't assume that because you're not as bad as that person, that person, or that person that you're going to get a pass. Don't assume that your ritualistic things in your life have saved you if your heart is not actually touched by them. I'm trying to be careful here. But also really clear. Don't, don't assume where you're at because of the things that you do regularly in your life. Have you ever asked God to save you? It's probably a valid thing to think through. Have you ever called out to Jesus, I'm a sinner, I need your life, your perfection to cover me? If you have not, I'll just tell you, there's no better time than to do it now. Don't assume it anymore. Verse 17 through 24 again. 
But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law embodied of the knowledge of truth, you then, notice the the change here, you do all of that stuff, you then who teach other people, do you not teach yourself? really good at telling them what's right and what's good and who God is and how to live and how do you have that talk with your heart that you have with everyone else in verses 11 through or 1 through 11 he talked to us about being religious people who judge others sin while doing the same things ourselves this is a blatant form of hypocrisy in verses 17 through 24 Paul adds to that an uh, an element that we need to pay attention to as well. He says there's some religious people. And again, these are just church-going folks who'd say, I'm a Christian. Who they rely on the law, meaning they try and do good things. They boast in God. Yeah, Christian, God's awesome. They approve of what's excellent. Yeah, we should do that. They think of themselves as a guide to the blind. Like, I, I, I kind of know what you're supposed to do and, and not. I, my, my life is kind of worth, like I'm not perfect, but I, I kind of know what's up. I'm a light to the darkness. I could instruct foolish people for sure. I could teach some kids. Again, you teach other people so well, why do you not teach your own heart, Paul says. This verse shows the temptation to think, I, I know what's right. People just listen to me. I could tell them what they should do. I, I know how they should live. I, I know what we should be doing. I, I, I know what's right, and God is good, and I, and I, I kind of got it figured out. I, get, I can tell you what you're doing wrong, and, and I can tell the world why they're not godly, and all of those things. Paul goes, why are you instructing the whole world while you're doing the same sins that they are? Right? In one, it was condemnation. Why are you condemning the whole world while you do what they do? This is even heavier why do you pretend that you have all the answers and tell everybody else what they're supposed to do while you have no intention of doing it yourself? How are you so blind to your own heart while you're so confident in how to fix theirs? This is hypocrisy again. Paul saying we cannot wear masks and pretend to be something that we are not. We can't masquerade around like actors pretending to be someone else. The original language here that they're using is, is literally a, a theatrical actor who puts on a face mask over who they are. This is the original language. It says we cannot be these people who, who put on this mask to pretend to be someone that we're not actually inside as we go around and navigate the world. You're pretending to be something that is not inside of you. You're acting. This is a role that isn't actually who you are. He says, you spend so much time trying to teach other people what's right. Why don't you spend time teaching yourself or preaching to your heart? Why aren't you more worried about what's happening in your heart? He says, when you tell everyone else what they should be doing while you're not doing it yourself, and you're okay with keeping your sin, he says, you're blaspheming the name of God. We don't use the word blasphemy a lot anymore. But you're blaspheming the name of God among the Gentiles, meaning those who aren't believers. This is what Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees all the time, saying to them, you pretend to be righteous and holy, yet you're none of those things inside. Someone asks you, yeah, I'm righteous, I'm holy, do all these good things, and yet inside there's death. We've seen this, we've been this maybe before. 
a person who kind of talks a good faith game and yet they sin like it's their job. Paul says, when you do this, when you're telling other people how to live and what's right, and yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I've got, I know what you're supposed to do, and yet you're not doing it, you bring contempt upon God. You make people hate God. You're making the world think the wrong thing about God through the way that you're living. Your hypocrisy is staining the name of God. It's not changing his character, but it's changing the way the world sees him. And we've heard people say, well, I hate churches because they're full of, full of, of, of fake people. And then we go in a long conversation of that. Some people just hide behind that just to, as an excuse to never go in and just a whole other thing. But a lot of them are right. We are. But if we're okay staying that way, it's driving people away because they go like these people, they proclaim all this stuff, but none of that's actually happening. Again, this is blaspheming the name of God. But here's what we need to hear. It's not just the mega pastor that falls that does this. It, it's not just the prosperity preacher who preaches to get a jet who's doing this. We do it ourselves when we walk around with sin that we are perfectly content with leaving there because of the religious deeds that we have that we think make up for it. You need to understand this. You and I and what we do can do that as well. The question that we should fundamentally ask today, I think a part of this is, what does your life say about God to the world around you? Does it show what he's actually like, that he's a good, kind father? Slow to anger? Holy, righteous? Does it show any of that to the world around you? Or does it make the world hate him because they go, he's just fake and mean? For years, people have said that the Bible is the light of the world. This is probably more popular in my parents' generation and before. But the Bible's the light of the world. The Bible's the light of the world. But here's the thing, that's wrong. The Bible is the light of the Christian. The Christian is meant to be the light of the world. We have to ask, are we embodying this or not? Are we light? Are we differentiated? Not, not are we superior. Again, that's another form of judgment. But are we because God has done a good work in us that is all of grace and he's changing us from the inside out? Are we showing the light and the beauty of God to the people around us? Is there anything different from what we show the people around us than what our unbelieving people around us do? Or does our life look the exact same with a couple religious flares on it? One of the ways we think about this, how do your neighbors perceive you and how do they think of God because of you? Super valid question. What do your coworkers think about God from what they see about you? If you're like, well, they don't even know I'm a Christian. Well, start back. You got more work to do. The people that you work out with, that you hobby with, that you do life with, the, the, the unbelievers around you, what do they think about God because of the way that you live? They're like, forget that nonsense. I act like them and I don't, have to, I don't have to be somewhere on Sunday. Or do they think, man, there's something there. I said before, covenant law and circumcision were the three pillars of Judaism. In the last section, Paul talks about that third pillar, circumcision. I'm going to assume that you know what that is. If not, I'm not going to tell you. Circumcision is an outward sign that the Old Testament Jews would perform. This outward sign was meant to be a marker that they were God's people. It's an outward physical sign of who they belong to, right? In the Old Testament, there's no other reason that you would do that than you belong to God, right? So it's an outward sign. 
in modern times, there are lots of, uh, of people that have started to cling to other things as outward signs to prove that they belong to, to God or try and prove it. So in modern days, we don't use circumcision for that. We use church membership and baptism often. They're not meant to be used for that, but these are often outward signs that people are like, well, yeah, I'm saved because I've done that. Paul is getting after in these verses is that outward signs, whether it's circumcision or the fact that you were baptized or that you're a church member are worthless if your life and your heart have not been affected by your Savior. I don't care how many outward signs you do. If the Savior hasn't changed your heart, all of them are absolutely worthless to you. His point is you can claim all of those signs, but if you're breaking the laws of God and you're fine with it, if you're sinning without ever changing, that again, those were just like grandma-pleasing things that you did for, for pictures to, to post on Instagram. They weren't, they, they didn't do anything inside. You probably heard people say, or maybe you said at this point, where I was saved when I was baptized long ago. I was baptized as a baby, or I was baptized when I was seven, and you know, I, I was saved way back then. Or, oh, well, I've been a church member for a really long time. Like, I, I, how do you know that you're saved? What? When I was 17, I became a member at a church. These markers are, are held higher and some other forms of faith, like a lot in Catholicism and things like that. But people say, well, I did these things, so I'm good. While they live a life that there's no obedience from, no sanctification, no service of the body, no change inwardly at, at, at all, no, no real manifestation from the inside. Paul would say that that person isn't saved no matter how many things they did. The real outward sign that you and I have is the way that we live. Yeah, okay, I was dunked in water. I went on a missions trip. But if the life hasn't been changed, we shouldn't assume that that, that's proof that we are God's. This is Paul's warning. Don't hang your hat on outward signs of faith. Just don't assume. Again, don't assume because you've been around church forever that you're fine. Do not assume because you did something at one point when you were young that you're fine. Whether it be attending church or, or you got dunked in water or you became a member or you went on a missions trip or, or you got a Jesus-y tattoo or anything like that. Don't, don't hang your hat on any of those things. When Christ saves a person, he changes their inward and their outward. And the inward becomes visible on the outward afterwards. Hang your hat on that. We want to be careful. We are pro-church membership and baptism. That's also being obedient to Christ. Go and baptize. Just don't, don't assume that those are salvific or they're proof that you're saved. I think this is important to think through for a lot of us. We've got several of us with kids that are getting older and starting to act or ask about baptism. That's why it's so important to think about. They're wanting to proclaim faith. We want to, want to make sure that they actually know Jesus before they're making these proclamations of faith through these other Things. These are just things that we need to think through. God makes someone new on the inside, and this inward change then begins to manifest on the outside, salt and light. And the things that we do, this countercultural statement that Paul makes to them in the text would be this, it's better to be an uncircumcised, converted person than to be a circumcised, unconverted person. For us in modern culture, it would be better to be an unbaptized, saved person than to be a baptized, unsaved person. Do not assume, do not hang your hat. Do not rely on ritual or habit. 
Those things aren't bad. Just be careful what you do with them. As we wind down the second chapter, the best way to deal with it may be to ask, is Jesus moving around the furniture in your heart? Is he changing you? Does he have access to the inward parts of you? Is he changing your motives or your desires? And is he reforming uh, not just your habits, but your heart? If so, and you know that you've asked God to save you, praise God, the power of salvation has come. You've been made new. This is the beauty. When you take communion today, you're remembering it's your broken body and your blood that made that possible. I didn't earn it. I I didn't have to do 8 million steps to get it. I just said, I'm a sinner and I need help. And you saved me. Praise God that you did that. If you see this happening, praise God, hang your hat on what's happening in your heart, not what you do externally. There's external things we're meant to do as believers. Just don't hang your hat on them. If you haven't done that, Much like last week, again, I would ask you to deal with that reality and tell you this, God doesn't want your morality alone. He wants your heart. Think about what good news that is. A capricious God that just wants your habits but wants nothing to do with your, your, your heart. That's not good news. But a God who wants your heart and then having your heart, he wants that to change who you are. That's really good news. He wants to make you new. He wants to clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus. So when all the skeletons come flying out of the closet, Jesus covers you and says, paid in full. The enemy would be like, that guy's mine. And Jesus like, nope, paid for it. If you've been relying on deeds or habits or even just redemption's hill to save you, don't. Don't do that. Call out to God to be saved. I pray with you today if you'd like to. Don't leave your eternity up to some habits and rituals. Come and taste and see that the real Jesus is good and understand that you can be made right with a holy God. I hope that there'd be some beauty in realizing this. The God of the universe, holy, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, all, like God the Father might be drawing your heart He sent Jesus to make a way for you and now sending the Holy Spirit to draw you. Why? Because he loves you and he wants you. And if you call out to him to be saved, God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Please, I confess that I need you. Hear the beauty of what Zephaniah in the Old Testament 3 says about that. The infinite creator God, when you call out, sings and dances over you in joy. God of the universe. You, me, he, he did that for me. Yeah, that's what he does. Joyful and exuberant. Why? Because a lost child came home. Because the beauty that he has cheated death and the shame of what their eternity could have been to adopt you into his family. The prayer that we have is that God would sing and dance today over you. And here, here's the thing. There, there have been quite a few people. We've gone for 10 years now. Here's a, here's a regular cycle that's happened to us. People who've grown up at a church and been in our church four years have come up at some point and go, I think I just realized I've never been saved. So no matter how long you've been with us, if it's your first time or you've been here for all along, just don't assume. There would be the things inside of like, well, I've, you know, I've done all these things. I've been around all of this time. And like, what would it do if, people, if I told people, like, I think I got saved today? They would sing too. Don't, don't let that weird stuff that happens inside stop you. Just don't assume. Don't assume. That's, that's my prayer for us. Man, you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion today. My hope is that you would respond in faith. All can take
But in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At any point during worship, you can, you can take. All we ask is that your faith be in Jesus to take. But here's the beauty. You're proclaiming to yourself every week, there's a sacrifice for me. Even when you added two skeletons to the closet, there's a sacrifice for you. Jesus has paid it all. He's paid it in full. So if you are doing great and super excited about your faith, you just take joyfully. You've done all of this. If you come in made low, here's the beauty. He still saved you. Come and take and let your soul feed in the reality that Jesus has come to die in your place, paid in full for you, and wants to change your heart. Take in light of that. And my hope is that you would be encouraged as you take, that your heart would be restored. We need to see that there's just a slow, beautiful build in taking and remembering no matter what comes your way. We've all had different weeks. The, the beauty is when we gather together, it doesn't matter what came at you this week, the sacrifice is still there. Your Savior still loves you. He still cares for you greatly. I pray that your heart would be built up in that. Would you stand and we'll pray and get ready to worship?